we're going to jump into the book of Acts, chapter 17, and I'm going to read that now. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and <coughs> Apollonica, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But the other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them, in, welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go in Berea. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. In Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aeropagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what that means. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offering, offspring, we should, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Well, good morning, church. It's uh, great to be here and looking at Acts chapter 17 today. If you're here at the hub, Maybe you can give us a shout out. I'll count down to three and you can give us a shout out. We'll see if we can hear you upstairs in the studio. So are you ready? Three, two, one. There we go. I don't know if the rest of the YouTube world could hear that, um, but there's a whole bunch of people here at the Hub today watching church online as we're up in the studio. Um, well, Acts chapter 17. I uh, love the smorgasbord breakfast. You know the breakfast where you get to choose from every breakfast choice under the sun. Now what you can do is you can go back and just have the same thing over and over and over again if you want. Or you can choose everything on the menu. You could have cereal, an omelette, you can have bacon and eggs and sourdough and croissants. And, and I love those places where you get to actually choose your omelette ingredients. And you watch it and, and, and get, watch it get made right there in front of you. But I think as a nation, what we've done is we've actually taken the best breakfast idea ever and adopted it as the way to approach spirituality or religion. And so in the 21st century, we're actually presented with a smorgasbord of spirituality. If you go to the Mind, Body, Spirit Festival that takes place every year in Sydney, you can go to 200 different stalls that each offer their own alternative worldview and their own approach to spirituality. You can learn about Feng Shui. You can buy crystals that restore harmony and balance to your life. You can learn the art of tantric lovemaking that helps you reconcile your spirituality with your sexuality. You can even buy books on how to be a witch and the basic art of casting spells. And that's only just scraping the surface. And just like at the smorgasbord breakfast, we either choose one thing on the menu or we take a little bit of everything. We try a whole range of different op options. And as Australians, we love the smorgasbord. We love that you can kind of pick and choose whatever it is you want to believe. Well, friends, welcome to Athens. Athens did the same. It offered up a smorgasbord 
of religious ideas. It was a city that was rich with philosophical traditions that were inherited from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It had art and literature. Even though it was not the biggest city in ancient Rome, it, it had an unrivaled reputation as the empire's intellectual metropolis. This was a university city. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 21, it says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And in the midst of this very intellectual environment, the discussions were not devoid of God or spirituality. In fact, in Athens, spiritual things were at the very center of their discussing of ideas. And so what did Paul see when he turned up in Athens? Well, verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so what he saw was a, a city full of idols. And it's interesting here, we don't only get a sense of what Paul saw, but we also get an insight to what he felt. And it says he was greatly distressed. And this phrase is trying to convey the idea of gut-wrenching agony. It caused him gut-wrenching agony to see a city full of people giving itself over to idolatry. And I love that little phrase because it, it shows that Paul was concerned for God's glory. He didn't want another thing or someone to get the glory and honor that God deserves. And it's a great reminder to us, yeah? Do we care about God's glory? Does it tear us up on the inside when we see people giving themselves over to the things of this world instead of worshiping God? Look, I think we all need to repent of our apathy in this area of life. We need to pray that God would make us jealous for His glory. Now, what Paul feels and sees translates into action. He goes and he speaks about Jesus at this point. He has this passion for the glory of God, which translates into evangelism. And so in verse 17, he, he begins, as always, in the synagogue. And he reasons with the Jews and the God-fearers. But he also moves into the marketplace. And he reasons with whoever was there. Now, the marketplace was a little bit like the farmer's markets. Uh, but instead of just finding hipsters wanting to source their unpasteurized milk and their farm-fresh eggs for breakfast, you would find philosophers congregating and arguing with one another. And so Paul joins in in verse 18. It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so notice even in the marketplace, he's not just doing apologetics. He's not just speaking about uh, living a good life. He spoke unashamedly about the resurrection of Jesus. And from the marketplace, he's, he's invited to the Areopagus to speak more. And in the Areopagus, he, he preaches a very famous sermon. 
And it's a little bit different to the sermon that he might have preached in the synagogue. In the synagogue, he, he can kind of make a whole bunch of assumptions. He can assume that they believe that there is one God, that God is the creator of all things, that he's in charge of the universe today, that he's sovereign and powerful and he's the architect of history. He can assume that they're actually waiting for the Christ and for judgment day to come. But in the Areopagus, they worship all sorts of gods. There's not one God, but many gods. And gods who are not sovereign and powerful, but gods who are capricious and needy. And so Paul begins his sermon in a very different place. Have a look in verse 22. He says, People of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I, can, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So you can imagine Paul doing the tourist thing in Athens. He wanders the streets, he goes to the temple, he, he looks at the architecture, he takes some selfies. And what he notices about this city is that there are many objects of worship. Some back in the day said, there are more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. Another person said it was easier to find a god there than a man. There was the great statue of Athena. There was shrines and statues to Apollo and Jupiter and Venus and Mercury and Bacchus and Neptune and Diana. The whole Greek pantheon was there and they were beautiful. And they were not only made of stone and brass, but of gold and silver and ivory and marble. And they, they'd been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. And there was one that stood out to Paul. The one with the inscription, to an unknown God. In the middle of all the shrines and statues, there was one whose name was, I don't know. And this was Paul's cue. Even amongst the smorgasbord of gods in Athens, here was this admission that for all of their religion, they were still in the dark. See, the furthest they'd got with all of their discussions was an admission of their ignorance. The Mind-Body-Spirit Festival provides us with the same kind of testimony, doesn't it? The fact that you can walk from one booth to the next and never receive the same message is testimony to the fact that by and large our spirituality is at best a stab in the dark. There is this admission that even though we claim to be spiritual, we don't know God. Well, friends, the wonderful thing is, is that God has made himself known to us. He's not the unknowable God of the Athenians. He is the God who has made himself known. And so in his revelation of himself to us, what has God actually told us about himself? Well, before we kind of dive into the sermon itself, it's worth highlighting that what we have before us in Acts chapter 17, it's a little bit like a, a dot point summary of what would have been Paul's sermon that day. Each of the points that he makes here would have been elaborated on at, at, at quite some, some length. See, the Areopagus was not a place where you would stand for two minutes, make your case and then sit down. No, you were able to speak for ages. And so the first dot point 
is that God is the creator and sustainer. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, give, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he starts with God being the creator of all things, which means he's immediately at odds with the Athenian worldviews that see God as being part of this creation. Now, in our culture, the popularized version of this idea of God being part of our creation is seen when people refer to Mother Earth. And you hear this a lot, don't you? There are all sorts of kind of green initiatives that talk about protecting Mother Earth. Mother Earth is like a goddess who needs to be protected and coddled and cared for because she's part of this creation and so therefore fragile. Now, I'm all for looking after this creation, but not because I'm worried about God's well-being, but because God gave us his creation and made us stewards of his world. See, God is outside of his creation and he doesn't need anything from us. Rather, he gives us life and breath and everything else. It's not that he needs you, rather you need him. And yet, even though he doesn't need us, the remarkable thing about God is that he wants us to know him. In fact, he's actually mapped out the history of the world so that you can know him. And this is the second dot point of his sermon. God is the God of human history. You see it in verse 26. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. Now right here, Paul is saying that God is sovereign over the nations. He's the ruler over every nation because he made all of the nations. And not only has he made the nations, but he's the great architect of human history. And the purpose of human history is so that some might reach out and find him. What Paul is saying here to the Athenians is God wants you to know him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. How amazing is that? The architect of human history has mapped out your life so that you can reach out and find him. And so Paul looks around the city and he says, I can see that you're very religious. Even though God is not far from each of us, though, you are lost. You're worshipping this unknown God. And it's gut-wrenchingly painful for Paul to watch because he knows that God is knowable. He knows that God is not far from each one of us. And so he's the sovereign architect of human history, but he's also the architect of your own personal history. He has and he is working through the individual events of your life so that you might reach out and find him. Now, if you talk to someone who's a Christian, they can actually look back at their life and see a series of events and people who God has placed in their lives so that they might know him. 
The first time I was really introduced to God was through my nan. She prayed for me. She took my brother and I along to church from her, with her from time to time. And then that seed bore fruit when I was in high school, in year 12. There was a particularly pesky bunch of people who kept inviting me to a Bible study group. And eventually I went and, and, and there it was that, that I was reluctantly, somewhat reluctantly, won over to Jesus. And I saw throughout that year that the emptiness of my life and, 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 and looked at a fullness of a life lived with Jesus. And I could no longer resist God's calling. If you're here today, how did you end up here? Did you stumble across it on YouTube? Did a friend invite you? Your availability to, do, to be here today is something that God has ordained. God is saying to each one of us personally, I want you to know me. And if you're a Christian, then you've actually been placed where you are so that others around you can know God. And the question is, are you allowing God to use you? What opportunities are you taking to love people around you and show them just how wonderful Jesus is? Or does your heart refuse to ache for God's glory? Now, what does it look like to reach out and find God? How do I do that? Well, the first step is one of repentance. And that's the third thing we see here about God. God is the God who demands repentance which really just means changing the direction of your life. This is what it says in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So what are they to repent from it's idolatry living for someone or something other than God you see if God is the creator and if he can't be contained by temples and if he's the sustainer of the universe and every breath we take is actually from him if he's the ruler of the nations and from one man he made every nation if we're his offspring and God is our father then idolatry is us running from all of those truths and then placing someone or something else on God's eternal throne and then living for that thing or that person. Now, if we kind of stop and think about it, idolatry actually makes very little sense. No sense at all, actually. In Isaiah chapter 44, the prophet says this about idolatry. He says, he cuts down Caesar. Uh, he cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and, and the rain made it grow. <clears throat> it is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal and he roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. And from the rest he makes a god, his idol, 
he bows down to it and worships and he prays to it and says, save me. You are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over. They cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Now, when we read that in the 21st century, it seems ludicrous, yeah? And yet when we travel, we admire the idolatry of the nations. Pre-COVID, we would go to Thailand and India and Indonesia and Vietnam, and usually it's for cheap beer and bintang singlets and things like that. But, but when we go, we also like to go and buy some of the religious trinkets in these places. And so we might get ourselves a Buddha for our garden and we visit the temples and we take photos and, and, and we take it all in as a good thing. Or Paul would say all of their religion is a sign that they are lost. Paul's response would be feel, feeling gut-wrenching agony in his passion for God's glory. It's nothing more than people taking the truth about God and exchanging it for a lie. In Australia, idolatry is harder to spot. But we're guilty of it whenever we take the good gifts of life and then we make them the ultimate things. So it might be family or, or, or it might be health, right? If you don't have your health, you've got nothing, people will say. Or it might be comfort and lifestyle and making sure that we have this good balance of work and pleasure. Or maybe we live in, in, in search of love or an adrenaline rush and they're all actually good things. But we take all of those good things and then we make them the ultimate thing, the thing. And in God's eyes, when we do that, we look like the person in Isaiah 44. And in verse 30, Paul calls it ignorance. Because as good as those things are, they're not good gods. They're a bit like that block of wood. They can't hear us. They can't save us. They'll ultimately let us down. They will fail to deliver on all of the things that they promise us. But the big problem, the big problem with us doing this, is that it ignores Judgment Day. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he would judge the world by, with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, the big problem with refusing God's invitation is it ignores judgment day. And the man he's appointed to judge the world is Jesus. Now, we don't often think about Jesus as the judge. We focus on the fact that God sent him to endure the cross, to endure the shame of being convicted and killed as a criminal, to endure the cross for us, to take our sin and to pay for our idolatry and, and, and to pay for our apathy and our indifference towards God and our defiance against God. And so though we're guilty, 
We know that Jesus makes forgiveness possible through his death on the cross. But his resurrection proves not only that his death actually paid for sin, but that judgment day is coming. And you see his resurrection, you see in his resurrection, I should say, God installing Jesus as the judge. And with Jesus as the judge, God will judge the world justly on a set day, on a day that has been predetermined by God. And on that day, Jesus' righteous judgment of the world and of individuals will be surrounding this question. How have you responded to Jesus? That is what it all boils down to. Paul says in verse 30, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. How have you responded to Jesus? Well, we saw earlier that repentance was turning away from idolatry. But as we turn away from idolatry, we need to turn towards Jesus in trust and dependence. Accepting God's invitation to know him through Jesus. That is what life is all about, friends. How have you responded to Jesus? Now, you might think that the question that I just asked is this one. Have you been a good person? But that's not the question I asked. Let's just rewind a moment or two. The question I asked is, how have you responded to Jesus? And on the last day, that will be the question we're faced with. How have we responded to Jesus? Have we suppressed the truth about God? Have we refused to know him as the creator and the sustainer and the Lord of history and as judge? Have we worshipped Jesus or did we choose something else? From the smorgasbord of religions and worldviews to invest in. How have you responded to Jesus? Well, this part of Acts is brilliant because it shows three ways that people commonly respond to Jesus. Have a look there in verse 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So there are some that sneered at him. And you see this actually back in verse 18. Back in verse 18, when he's in the marketplace, they say, what is this babbler trying to say? And the word babbler there literally means seed picker. And so it's, what is this seed picker trying to say? And it was a derogative term that was used for philosophers. And it was to liken philosophers to little birds who fluttered around and picked up disconnected scraps of incoherent nonsense. So what is this babbler, this seed picker trying to say? But even in that climate of mocking, there were some who wanted to hear more. In the marketplace, they invited him to come and speak at the Areopagus. And at the Areopagus, there were some who, who wanted him to come back so that they could hear more. And if that's where you're at, that's great. We'd actually love you to get in contact with us today. You can do that by texting that number that comes up on the screen during our service or through our website, 
and someone will help you find out more about Jesus. And then the third group of people are those who believed, who repented of their idolatry and placed their trust in Jesus. Friends, that is the best decision, the best decision these people have ever made. Because trust in Jesus is how we can know God. See, the most wonderful thing about being a Christian is not simply that we're forgiven. It's not simply that we have eternal life. But repentance means entering into a wonderful, joyful relationship with God who made us. In the book, Knowing God, you can find the excerpt of a sermon that was given in 1855 by a man called Charles Spurgeon. And he said the, the following about, about knowing God. He said, Oh, there is in contemplating, contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietness for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go and plunge yourself in the Godhead's deeper sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so Speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Friends, we don't worship an unknown God, but we worship a God who has made himself known in the person of Jesus. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Acts and for Acts 17. And for the way that Paul unpacks what a wonderful thing it is to know God, to know you, and to know just wonderful truths that we sometimes take for granted, the fact that you are our creator and sustainer and that you're the Lord of history. And we thank you that one day you will right every wrong that has taken place on this earth. We thank you that one day there will be a judgment and we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for that day. Help us to turn away from idolatry and to live for Jesus, to trust in his death and resurrection for salvation. And help us, Heavenly Father, to not just want the benefits of the gospel, but to love you, to love you and to know you deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.